Testing, testing, one, two, three, 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 three. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. We're back at home, back in the groove on Backlick Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe, that's Z-O or Z-O if you're outside of the U.S., and we're talking about the movies of yesteryear. This is the 72nd episode. Thank you for downloading and streaming. We really appreciate it. The reason we started this show was to strengthen the bond between my son, Zach, and me. We watched movies that I loved when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. I'm going to try to tell you what Zach thought about those classic movies that we just watched yesterday. Now, if you like this show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser.com, or your favorite podcast app. Finally, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. You can find the details in the show notes. And as a reminder, I'm going to be trying to get these episodes out on a Monday. Right now, I'm actually recording right now on Monday. So when you hear this, it will be uh, you're probably listening to this on a Tuesday or late Monday evening because this will probably get out um, probably Monday afternoon. We'll, we'll see. Uh, I, and I'm thinking about, as I said last episode, pushing this to Tuesdays since uh, at least it'll be consistently coming out at the same time instead of like herky-jerky, maybe Monday morning, maybe t- <laughs> maybe Tuesday morning. <laughs> I, I think I could probably consistently get it out on Tuesdays. And let's head on to the, the meat and potatoes of this podcast. So this here is the opening credits. And what we want to talk about today is one of the, one of the greatest movies of all time. And that movie is The Untouchables. About The Untouchables, during the era of prohibition in the United States, Federal agent Elliot Ness sets out to stop ruthless Chicago gangster Al Capone and, because of rampant corruption, assembles a small hand-picked team to help him. This movie was released in July 3, 1987, produced by Paramount Pictures. It grossed over $76 million in the U.S. and Canada on a $25 million budget to great reviews. Now, that is to say that uh, it, it had... A really good growth. Now it wasn't wouldn't call it a blockbuster, like a mega blockbuster, but it it had a, a an excellent growth for a, a movie of its type. And also, I want to point out that uh, it, in case you didn't know, The Untouchables is based on the, as I said in this, the description, Elliot Ness' pursuit and capture of Al Capone. Now, that is to say that um, the the movie. Even though the movie is based on true events, it has a lot. It's very, what's the word? It takes a lot of artistic licenses. So many of the events that are depicted in a film did not actually occur. And this is a heavily dramatized version of Elliot Ness, of the Elliot Ness pursuit of Al Capone. And so are all of the subsequent TV shows and the previous movies that have come out about the untouchables but um this movie is is like is capital in my life when i was growing up so this movie stars kevin costner oh see i'm about to mess up already let me start that again this movie stars kevin costner as elliot ness 
See, you know what tripped me up? It was Elliot because it has one L. Uh, an Elliot with one L is suspicious. So Kevin Costner has starred in The Postman, Dances with Wolves, and The Bodyguard. This is like the very beginning of his acting career. Well, not, well, his acting in cinema career. When he was cast, he was relatively unknown. And this is basically the movie that catapulted Kevin Costner into superstardom. This movie also stars Sean Connery as Jim Malone. He played where well, he was in Dr. No, The Rock, and Highlander. Also, Robert De Niro as Al Capone. He's been in Cape Fear, Raging Bull, and Taxi Driver, which are three of some of the greatest movies of all time. And it's like, it's very rare for Robert De Niro to catch an L. He's just been starring in absolute great movies. Charles Martin Smith plays Agent Oscar Wallace. He's been in Dolphin Tale, American Graffiti, and Never Cry Wolf. Continuing, we have Andy Garcia, also pretty early in his career. He plays Agent George Stone, also known as Giuseppe Petri. He's been in Ocean Eleven, The Godfather Part Three, and The Lost City. Richard Bradford plays Police Chief Mike Dorsett. He's been in The Legend of Billie Jeans and More American Graffiti. Billy Drago played Frank Netty, or I'm sorry, it's probably pronounced Neti. He's been in Delta Force 2, The Columbia Connection, Tremors 4, The Legend Begins, and The Hills Have Eyes from 2006. And finally, I have Patricia Clarkson. She is credited as Ness' wife. And Ness' wife, at the time of the events of, that are depicted in the film, her name is actually Edna S. Ness, at least according to public records. And she's been in movies such as The Station Agent, The Green Mile, and Far From Heaven. The reason um, I wanted to add these little notes about uh, Patricia Clarkson playing, as she is credited in the film, Ness's wife is why didn't they give this character a name and that kind of bugged me and it's it's somewhat disrespectful that they didn't give her name mainly because um it they even if either Ness or Ness's widow because he had passed away long before this film happened I, I think even Ness's wife had passed away or was like at of oh goodness gracious I'm getting it all confused um, so Ness's wife, I think she was, she was definitely near old age by the time this movie came out. So maybe she wanted her privacy or whatever, but they still could have given the character a name, a pseudonym, if if anything. I don't like that she's merely credited as Ness's wife. That's strange, misogynistic, disrespectful, and I wanted to make some sort of, uh, correction. So anyway, continuing. This movie was directed by Brian De Palma. He's also directed Mission Impossible, Carlito's Way, and The Black Dahlia, and some of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> this movie was written by Oscar Fraley and Elliot Ness. Well, it's loosely based on Ness's autobiography. And the uh, the movie was actually written by David Mamet. He also wrote State in Maine, Glengarry, Glen Ross, and Wag the Dog. So 
He's really heavy into political thrillers. The music was by Ennio Morricone, and he's also written, well, he's also conducted or made music for The Hateful Eight, The Best Offer, and The Legend of 1900s. Uh, these are not well-known films to me, and I think that he mostly immersed in making music for Italian cinema. cinema. And now for some announcements, because that's it for the opening credits. And if you're enjoying the show, I'd like you to remember us and to help you with your memories of us. You can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, face masks, and jerseys and more at our refurbished website, backlickcinema.com slash shop. Check weekly for new designs and products. I'll leave you the links to teespring.com and teepublic.com in case there's anything there that you want. In particular, the pint glasses are only available at Teesprings, and I have a couple of new designs for the pint glasses, so go check those out. And now, up next, Stuff I Heard. All right, so here's some stuff across the interwebs that I heard about. Uh, checking in to see if you guys heard about them. So according to an article by Nathan Kamel from giant freaking robot robot mm, goodness gracious from giant freaking robot oscar isaacs moon knight will be appearing in captain america 4 this is according to the famous trusted and proven sources often used by the gfr writers so the trusted and proven sources is a phrase that they often use in their articles especially when they're talking about things that should be left to speculation and it's clickable. When you click on it, you see all of the articles where they predicted something might happen in a movie and those things came to fruition. So they just want to prove that their sources are real, that they're not just speculating. They're not talking about out of their bunghole. They, they really have actual sources that are giving them the hot tea on what's going on behind the scenes. So if it said so in Giant Freaking Robot, it's probably real. So I'm kind of excited to see Moon Knight translate to an MCU movie. I'd like to see that. And hopefully this is true. Up next, Christopher Walken joins Dune Part 2 as Emperor Shaddam IV. From various news sources, including Variety reporter Adam B. Very. So that is a very interesting casting to see Christopher Walken in such a role. This is a must-see movie now. I don't care what happens. I am going to break down my theater door to see Dune Part 2. I mean, I'm all I'm already committed. I've seen Dune Part 1. I'm already committed to see Dune Part 2. But Christopher Walking is the frosting on the cake. Can't wait to see it. Up next, in No Shit Sherlock News, Screen Rant article by Richard Fink writes that Zack Snyder's Oscar wins may have been rigged by his fans. And apparently there's evidence of heavy bot activity involved in voting for the fan uh, favorites. And yeah, I, I would expect something like that to happen. It's, I mean, it's a very huge surprise that the things that won in those fan categories won in those fan categories. And that's all I'll say about that. So I'm going to move on to the next and final story. NPR reports that Becky Sullivan, that actor... Nkuti Gatwa will be the first black lead in a Doctor Who series. Mr. Gatwa 
will be playing the Doctor, though he's not the first Black actor that has played the Doctor. Right? He will be the first Black actor that will lead the series as the Doctor. So that's very exciting. I might have to get back into Doctor Who again. I haven't really watched, I like, committed to watching Doctor Who since the 1980s, I guess, when I first got acquainted with the character of the Doctor. I love that series. <laughs> but um, but I hadn't watched much of the new uh, the newer episodes i've seen some of the david tenor run uh tenor tenant tenant the david tenant run and those were fabulous episodes and so you know i really like just so much stuff on television that it's hard but i really like to get back into doctor who again and i thought that the previous doctor with the the first female doctor i thought that was well the first lead female doctor i thought that was my end but it turns out it wasn't it, it just like I said, just too much stuff is happening. But with the first black lead actor in a Doctor Who series, I, this is my end this time. This is my end. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull the trigger on this series. So um, that's it for the news. And up next, we're going to talk about our favorite parts. So now here we are at the favorite parts of the movie. And I'm going to tell you what Zach thought as well as give you my own thoughts. And obviously, as I've been telling you, Zach is my clone and he loved this movie. Same way I love this movie. I can see and I'm giving him the side eye as as I'm watching the movie. I'm just kind of glancing over and he's fully engaged in the movie. And, and I knew that he would be because this is just an excellent film. So um, I asked him after the movie was over what he thought uh, some of the iconic parts were and he had pointed out things like uh, Malone's murder or Frank Nitti's murder by Elliot Ness but um I was like what well, but how about that that uh that train station sequence <laughs> I think at least to me that uh that was probably the most iconic point in 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 the film and also I mean not the the things that he noted weren't that he noted weren't great but that that train station sequence was that was bananas and uh that's the one that that's my strong there are lots of things and events that cause a strong memory but this is one of my one of the strongest memories i have of watching the film i haven't seen it in decades this is like one of the most powerful sequence in, in most of cinema so um yeah but but those but he didn't mention uh he doesn't remember any of the memes that 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 he may have seen from this movie on the shows that he watched. Uh, he said maybe a couple, maybe like the opera singer scene uh, when there's an opera singer, he's singing and um, Capone is at the opera and he is crying because the scene is so emotionally impactful. And then one of his agents come, I think it was needy and whispers in his ear. And then you can see, Capone's face changing from crying to laughing because he got what he wanted. So yeah, that was uh he that that was one of the scenes that he, um he had pointed out as well. But because he he believes that this is one of the memes that's used in one of the shows that he watches, one of the Cartoon Network shows or Family Guy, something or other. But he doesn't remember anything else really. So. I'm going to go through some of the things I really liked about the movie. And I want to start with the music. The music is just powerful. So I don't know how hard or how easy it was to get 
in uh Ennio Morricone. I don't know if it's Morricone or Morricone. It's it's one of those. I, I haven't heard his name pronounced. I'm sorry for the mispronunciation or whatever. But um the only other time I heard his music is in the eight, Hateful Eight that I am aware of. I think he's mostly in Italian cinema, as I mentioned earlier. But yeah, the the movie really hits hard. It hits hard in the opening sequence when they just showing you the credits. It's like, okay, this this is the movie that you you signed up for, so you better buckle your seatbelts because you're going to see some stuff. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. And um, also, I noted that um, in the credits it said that Giorgio Armani was a costume designer for the movie, and I didn't think that he did that kind of work, but yeah that his name was boldly on the credits and uh i can tell you more about that in the trivia and the scene opens with um al capone he's getting a shave and the reporters are talking to him and uh and the sh- the barber accidentally nicks capone's cheek and capone gives him that look and you know rubs his finger on his face he's the blood on his hands and it's like now now the barber's frightened for his life right (laughs) because he done nicked his boss and his boss happens to be al capone and that really sets the tone for a movie whereas you know that he's a powerful man and in fact the reporters are interviewing him telling him that you know asking him why he doesn't like run for mayor since they say that he's the de facto mayor of chicago and you know there's some funny banter between him and the reporters but um yeah, but that really sets it basically sets a tone for who Capone is, what his character is, and and that really brings you, sucks you, I say, I dare say, into the movie. So uh, another great part, I'm sure that this meme is somewhere, and I've seen it played out in different movies. But the scene where the guy, uh, the guy walks into a bar, and no, it's not even a bar. I guess it's a, it would be a restaurant that sells liquor on a sly. I'm, that's what I'm thinking because the guy, I think the guy is trying to get the um, the storekeeper to buy liquor from Al Capone. And the guy says, you know, he doesn't want to, and he's not going to buy Al Capone's liquor. It tastes bad or his beer because the beer tastes bad. Or was beer part of the prohibition? I'm pretty sure it was because you can still get drunk off of beer. But anyways, the guy is not buying the beer. And so, um, the guy walks out of the, you know, he tells the shopkeeper, okay, um, you know, we're not going to mess with you anymore. So he walks out the shop. Meanwhile, the, and then, you know, there's a little girl. She's, she comes into the shop. She's getting something from the shopkeeper, uh, something that the shopkeeper put, puts in her bucket that she brings. So maybe it's some water or milk or something like that. I don't know. She's getting something from the shop and putting it in a bucket and she's going to take it home. And in the meantime, she noticed that there's another gentleman there. He, uh, presses a latch on a briefcase and then casually walks out of, uh, walks out of the shop. Now you know at this point where this is going. But when I watched this movie for the first time, I did not know where this is going. So she she realized, "Hey, that dude left a left a briefcase." So she goes, she picks up the briefcase. Say, "Hey, mister, you left your briefcase." "Hey, mister." Boom! Boom, the whole the whole shop is gone. It's like, whoa, <laughs> right? So that was that was impactful. That that's and it's you've seen this scene played out in other movies, but I believe when I saw it, it was the first time that I've seen that particular scene played out in any movie. So the first time you see such a scene, it's 
hugely impactful. And what's even more impactful is that, you know, it's being held by a little girl, right? So that that's crazy. So um, when we meet Sean Connery for the first time, that's also funny. So when we see, so Sean, he is a police officer on the beat and Elliot Ness is on a bridge and he's down on his luck and he's kind of pissed off because his, his big bus, he had a tip that, you know, he got a huge liquor shipment and he was going to go to the warehouse where that liquor is being held and he was going to bust them up. And when he gets there, it's not, it's not crates of liquor. It's crates of parasols. And, you know, he's, he has his picture taken and he's embarrassed in a newspaper. And so he's had a bad day. And so he's on his way home and, you know, looking at notes and whatnot, and he crumbs up one of the notes and throws it over the bridge as Sean Connery walks by. Sean Connery plays uh, Malone. Let me see if I can get his first name. Jim Malone, Officer Jim Malone. And Jim Malone stops and says, you know, you're throwing, you know, you're littering and I'm going to give you a warning or whatever. And he asks, uh, and then he realizes that Elliot Ness is packing heat. So uh, he says, who are you? How, you know, why are you on? Who are you? And Elliot Ness, of course, he says, you know, I'm a treasury agent. And so Sean Connery nods his head and starts to walk away. And and then Elliot Ness was like, what? And then he goes back to Officer Malone. He's like, hey, why, why'd, you, why, why'd you just stop me? Why I just told you who I am. Why, why would you Why would you let me go based on what I said? And that's when Malone says, you told me you were a treasury agent. Who would claim to be, who would claim to be that? Who would claim, who, who, who is, who's, who has a gun being stopped by the police would claim to be a treasury agent. And um, that's when Costner realizes that, you know, this, this man has some smarts. And that's when Elliot Ness makes the decision to recruit Jim Malone on his handpicked task force. I also noticed that um, there were what I thought were black people on the radio, but they weren't black people on the radio because there's a scene where, you know, Elliot Ness is home with his family and they're listening to a radio program because this is before television and, or at the very least before they had a television and then listening to a, a sitcom on the radio. And I'm thinking that, yeah, this is a, this is black people on the radio, but it turns out they're they're not black people on the radio, and I'll explain more about that in the trivia. One of the best scenes in the movie was the baseball analogy. It was glorious. I'm surprised we don't see this more often. But so, if you don't remember, in um in the movie, there's a a meeting of all of the top lieutenants and captains in. Al Capone's outfit you know he has them all around this huge round table and they're all eating and he uh, picks up a baseball bat because he says that's one of his passions rather than booze and women that's his real passion is baseball and he starts walking around with the baseball talking about and basically comparing uh the crime family to baseball that's a huge baseball analogy how you, you're working as a team you have singular moments like when you're at bat that's a singular moment like that's you by yourself but at the same time, you are also part of a team. And I was like, yeah. And the guys were like, yeah, teamwork, teamwork, yeah, team. And then, and this guy, there's one guy that, and 
you know, Al Capone is walking around the table. There's one guy that he gets behind sitting at the table and he's really enthusiastic about the concept of teamwork. And then while uh, he's saying this, Al Capone just, you know, because he's in, he's behind the guy. The guy doesn't know what's happening. <laughs> so he pulls, so Al Capone pulls his arm back as hard as he pulls it back back as hard as he could and whacks the guy on his head and starts whacking and whacking and whacking and whacking <laughs> that is probably and obviously the other gangsters are really shocked too. this is a shocking moment nobody saw this company uh nobody saw this coming and you can hear somebody utter jesus christ right because this is this is uh utterly it's impactful that that's the best thing that you could say about it it's shocking it's uh it's heart stopping and and it basically uh again builds Al Capone's character. So uh yeah, that's one of the that's one of the most memorable parts of the movie for me. It's like besides the the baby carriage moment, that's another thing that sticks with me that has stuck with me throughout my lifetime. So um there's also obviously you got to have cricket politicians. So there's a guy that comes to bribe Elliot Ness, like after Elliot's Ness team is fully formed, he, he only has a team of like four guys and it's going to help him take out Al Capone. And so this guy comes to Elliot's office and he's like, he's a politician, like uh, a real Chicago uh, politician and alderman, I think. So they have that works in the state house or whatever. And, you know, he, <laughs> the dude offers Elliot, an envelope and Elliot Ness is like, what is this? You know what it is. You know what it is <laughs> or whatever. It's like the Elliot Ness throws the omelet, the envelope full of money at him and kicks him out of his office. And, but the thing about this, the reason I had to bring this up is because the guy looks like a, like a sleazy politician. Like if you wanted to, know, if you wanted to draw a picture of what a sleazy politician looked like in the 1930s, you would draw a picture of this guy. You know, he's just, uh, picture perfect casting in that instance because like as soon as he walks into Elliot Ness's office you, you could tell this guy is squirming you could tell there's something messed up about this guy and that that's when and he has this you know weird smile he has a smile that says I'm crooked right <laughs> just telegraphing that he's an evil corrupted individual and I, I just appreciate how they were like you know what we're not even going to be subtle here we're, we're gonna go full on this man is evil and and we want to we want to telegraph that as much as we can so there's a the bridge scene that i really liked and the bridge scene is so the um elliot ness gets real tips now and he's getting tips from malone and malone because one of the first thing malone tells ness is that because Ness can't seem to find where the liquor is. And Malone tells him, everybody knows where the liquor is. The issue is that nobody wants to take on Al Capone. So nobody really acts on the information that they get. So that's when Malone, with his mysterious resources, is able to tell Ness where all the, you know, the big liquor shipments are. And they start busting up the operation. So one of the operations is at the Canadian-American border at this bridge, you know, on something that borders Chicago. I'm not exactly sure where it's at. So they know that Capone's men are going to be transporting this liquor 
from Canada and they're going to stop them. They're going to get help from the Canadian Mounties or the Canadian, the Canadian Mounted Services. And uh, so the scene that, I, you know, there's a gunfight and all that, and it's all spectacular and thrilling and is, is nice. And then even there's a the tax agent that uh, is part of Ness's team. Uh, the name of the agent is Oscar Wallace, and he's a real book nerd. He's, again, great casting of Charles Martin Smith because he looks like a for real nerd. I think he's basically a character actor as an accountant or an office manager or something of that nature. Because I can't really see him playing any other part. But in this movie, he's basically transformed into a, a gunfighter, right? Because Malone grabs a, a shotgun and it's like, if you carry a badge, you carry a gun and gives the gun, this shotgun to Os Agent Oscar Wallace, you know, the, the bookworm nerd uh, treasury. No, he worked for the IRS. So he was a IRS agent. So he give he gives it this uh shotgun to this IRS agent. So he goes into battle. You know, he's battling bad guys. He's blowing bad guys away with his shotgun. <laughs> so it, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, he, he was the funniest thing about that fight because he just not doesn't look, look he doesn't look the role of a gunfighter and yet there he is blowing people away. So after this uh gun battle is done, you know, with the help of the Mounties and whatnot, they they've got one guy alive. They tried to they wanted to capture his uh capone's men alive so they could question capone because they don't want the liquor necessarily they want a trail that leads to capone so just having the liquor is not enough they they have uh they already have a ledger that shows that capone is uh well somebody's making payments to federal officials and you know they see evidence of corruption and bribery and things of that nature but they can't connect it to uh capone so that's what they need. They need the evidence. So when they bust the liquor, they also find a ledger. So they need somebody to basically translate the ledger to show a connection from Capone to, you know, bribery or that he's making income without paying income taxes. Because that's kind of what they're aiming for. They're trying to bring them down for income tax evasion because they can't get them on murder because <laughs> that's impossible. But they can get them on income tax evasion. So that's what that's the connection that they're looking for. So they they find one guy alive from the gunfight and they're trying to get him to talk. But of course, he's not going to talk. He doesn't you know, he's too tough for that. So they're in a house. Uh, this, you know, it's not even a house, more like an office. I don't know. It, it, this shelter. And they're questioning the guy. He won't he won't answer questions. So there's a dead guy outside of this shelter. Now, this the guy that they captured doesn't know that there's a dead guy outside of the shelter. but Everybody else does, and particularly Jim Malone, the officer, Jim Malone. He knows there's a dead guy outside, and so he goes outside, and he lifts this dead guy up. Now, this shows remarkable strength on Jim Malone's part because this guy is nearly as big as Jim Malone, and Jim Malone himself is up there in age. So uh, Jim Malone has remarkable strength lifting a dead-weighted body that weighs his probably as much as much as he weighs and puts him up against the window where the other guy being interrogated could see. And he takes the gun, but say he's mimicking that the guy is still alive. So Malone takes his gun and sticks it in the guy's mouth. You're not going to talk. You're not going to talk. What? What's the matter? You can't talk with a gun in your mouth. And then he pulls the trigger. He blows the dead guy's head off and 
drops the dead body. And then he go back. And now, now the guy is ready to talk because now he sees Malone as a guy that is willing to kill people for information. And he doesn't want that to happen to him. So he agrees to cooperate with U.S. federal agents. And then after this incident, the Mounties look upon Malone and Elliot Ness with disgust and <laughs> grab them by the side. And he says, we don't approve of your methods, which Elliot replies, you're not from Chicago. <laughs> So yeah, that that was uh fantastic. So um as I alluded to earlier, Zach really liked uh Malone's murder. This is when after Elliot Ness starts to have success in shutting down some of Capone's operations and hitting hitting Capone in the pocketbook, that is when um Al Capone's men start to target Elliot's team. So one of the people you know that obviously they're going to target malone so malone lives in the city you know his uh, they find out his address and um they're stalking him while he's you know the capone gang is stalking jim malone while he's in his apartment so the the stalking scene is great you know it's filled with tension and whatnot and then um it seems that malone is unaware but as it turns out he's fully aware because his would-be assassin assassin is surprised when malone turns around you know with uh with a double barrel shotgun when the assassin only has a knife and that's when malone makes a comment you bring a knife to a gunfight and then (laughs) um you know he's not shooting at the guy though that's that's kind of messed up he's not shooting at the guy he's just threatening him with the gun i guess he doesn't want to actually kill the guy but just threat just get him out of his house and then, um, and and he wants to prove a point that you know he's prepared for uh, Capone's henchmen if they wanted to try anything. So, but he walks the guy out of his house, and then when he gets outside, he's ambushed by the assassin Nitty. And so Nitty has an automatic weapon, probably a Tommy gun, and just fills Malone full of holes. And and you know Malone has to you know goes back to his house for shelter. But, you know, Nitty doesn't try to pursue him because, you know, he filled him with so many holes that he knows that Malone isn't going to survive. Or at the very least, he won't be in a condition to take any more action against Capone. So that that was the whole point uh, <laughs> of filling him full of holes. So that and then, you know, Malone crawls back into his house, you know, and that's when Elliot Ness finds him. And, you know, they're trying to. You know, they want to keep him alive, but, you know, they call it ambulance, but, you know, he's he's too far gone. He's he's still alive, but he's really too far gone to be rescued. And um, that's when Malone reaches for a piece of paper and, you know, it's circled with information. And, you know, basically with his last breath is indicating where the much needed bookkeeper is that the, they uh, lost one bookkeeper early in the film. The, the original guy that they captured was murdered by Capone. So they had to find a, another bookkeeper who could translate the all the evidence that they had collected. Somebody who could translate the information and is also willing to testify. So Malone had found this information through by fighting, having an old man fight with the police chief where he was getting his information from. <laughs> so uh so he indicates this, you know, where the bookkeeper is. And then with his actual laugh breath, he tell he asks Elliot Ness, what are you prepared to do? 
and dies. So uh, yeah, that that was a powerful scene. And it was funny because that it, it was actually a callback to an earlier scene when Ness originally recruited Malone and Malone asked Ness, you know, what are you prepared to do? Are you, are you willing to go the extra mile? Are you willing to do everything that you are, uh, even if it means going beyond the law to capture Al Capone? Because it's going to take doing, going beyond legal methods to capture somebody as elusive as Al Capone. And then when Ness makes this agreement, then you get this callback scene at the death of Jim Malone. So, yeah, that, that was a powerful scene. Uh, he also liked the uh, Frank Needy's murder. So, to be clear, Frank Needy was extrajudiciously murdered by Elliot Ness in this movie. <laughs> so this is at the you know this is after Capone is captured, and he notices that Needy is in the courtroom and he is armed. So after Needy is escorted out the courtroom for being armed. Needy pr- produces a permit, which is basically just a written, a handwritten note that's saying by the mayor saying that he's allowed to carry a firearm. And so, um, there's a gun battle for some reason. I can't, oh, I, I can't remember why, but uh, I think Needy says or do something, and then a, uh, the police officer that helped Ness escort Needy out of the courtroom, he he notices something, and so he's he's about to draw his weapon. And fire at Nitty, but Nitty is faster and kills the cop because Ness is trying to tell him, "Don't, don't shoot him, don't shoot him," because not because he thinks that uh, Nitty is innocent or anything, but because he knows that uh, Nitty is a much better shooter than the police officer. So then that's when Ness pursue, pursues Nitty. They end up on a the rooftop, and Ness is able to capture Nitty. So. He's going to take him down to the police station or to the courtroom, hand him over to officers to get booked. But then Nitty keeps like teasing Nest and everything. And so, and I think it's like, uh, like threats to his family or whatever. And so through this, through these threats, uh, Nest basically changes his mind and runs Nitty off the roof. He's, oh, <laughs> uh, actually, no, it was a threat. It was, he was teasing Nest about how. Jim Malone had died. You know, he said that Jim Malone squealed like a pig when he died. And that's when Ness changed the Instead of going to the staircase, he goes to the edge of the roof and pushes Nitty off the roof. And Nitty is screaming on the way down. And Ness says, did he sound something like that? So, yeah, that was... I can see why Zach would like that part. So, um, to backtrack a little bit, they, they need this bookkeeper in order to testify against Al Capone. This is where this is one of my favorite scenes is pretty much all of cinema. This is the the um, train station gun battle. Now, the problem with this is that it, it it's a little long. It takes its time. It takes a little too much time, but it's still a great scene. So this is, you know, there this is Al Capone and his best shot is played by Andy Garcia, Agent George Stone and uh, whose uh, previous name was Giuseppe Petri. They're there. They're, they're going to be staking out the gun station because they know that the bookkeeper is being escorted by Capone's men at the train station. So they want to capture him at the train station before he's able to get on the train. What happens is that there's a, you know, there's going to be people at the train station, right? It's, it must be like middle of the night and there's not a lot of people at the train station. You know, there's 
a few people get off the train and they leave the station. There's a, a mother with a couple of bags and, and a baby and a baby buggy. And they are on their way to the train. And she's trying to get these luggages and her baby up the stairs. And she's having a really hard time. And Ness is just looking at her and, you know, just struggling with all of her bags and her baby and just struggling. And then she is, and he knows that the dudes are going to be coming off the train in like four minutes. And this this woman is struggling getting their baby up the stairs. And she's basically in the kill zone. So he runs down the stairs and finally trying to help her out, trying to get her up the stairs before the bad guys can get off of the train. And he makes it. And so he's, he's pulling the baby characters while she's carrying her luggage. And he gets to the very top step. When the bad guys come off, one of the bad guys recognizes him. He starts to pull out his gun. Wait, he pulls out his gun. Elliot pulls out his gun and uh and blows that dude away, dropping the baby, letting the he doesn't drop the baby, but he lets go of the baby carriage, obviously, because you know, somebody he has to shoot somebody. And when he lets go of the carriage, it starts to go down the stairs. <laughs> so now uh all the bad guys start shooting at Ness, and Ness starts shooting at all the bad guys, and then also the best shot, uh George George Stone, he starts shooting out bad guys. There are very good shots because Ness is running and gunning at the same time, basically hitting all of his targets. <laughs> and and Andy Garcia is is hitting all of his threats as well. So they're just both they're just taking out bad guys as Elliot is running down the stairs after the after the baby carriage. Even the baby carriage gets hit. And the woman had gotten knocked down doing all of this, and she's on the ground just screaming after her baby who's in a baby carriage, going downstairs. And Finally, both George and Ness catch up to the baby carriage. They stop it right at the bottom step. There's only one bad guy alive and the accountant and or the bookkeeper. And he's holding the bookkeeper at gunpoint. He says, I'm, I'm getting out of here. You're going to let me go. If you don't let me go, I am going to kill the bookkeeper. And so they both got their guns pointed at this bad guy. He says, you ain't got nothing without this bookkeeper you don't got capone without this bookkeeper you don't got nothing your case will fall apart and so uh ness kind of asks stone he says you got him and stone says i got him so ness puts his gun down giving the uh the bad guy a sense of relief and then that's when the bad guy says i'm going to count the three and then i'm going to shoot this bookkeeper he goes one and while his mouth is still open Stone fires his gun and says two. <laughs> and, and you don't see a bullet hole or anything at first, but then as the bad guy slides down and lets go of the bookkeeper because he's dead, you see the blood back of his head. So while his mouth is open, um, Stone shoots him directly in the mouth. It's it's a beautiful scene. You know, holding a baby holding a baby carriage, uh, with the help of Elliot Ness. It's it was it was just great. So um, the baby in the baby carriage, he looked like he could walk. Uh, I don't, maybe they thought, you know, maybe we'll use a doll or something like that because we're not, we don't want to use a newborn. And then I'll probably say this again in, in the trivia, but the the stunt coordinator, he's like, well, well let's just use my baby. We want to, let's use a real baby. Yes, let's just use my baby. But his baby is four years old at least. So he was like a big ass baby in his baby carriage. And his baby could walk, so <laughs> it doesn't. And and the baby was awake. It wasn't like the baby was sleeping. The baby was awake. Uh, 
it it should it sh- that baby should have been walking up the stairs. He shouldn't have been in the baby carriage. That was that's kind of messed up. But but there there he was. And um, so another piece of this film. See, this is mostly Nest's story. It's the story of Elliot Ness about how he, you know, was in pursuit and eventually was able to charge Al Capone with tax evasion and and some other technical stuff. Not not the hard stuff like murder, but all of the financial stuff um, that might be associated with a gangster. That That's what he was able to capture Al Capone on. So you don't really see much of Capone in this movie, at least not part of the actual narrative. What Capone has instead are confessionals, like you see on um, reality TV shows where, you know, they go into where the, the people... And the reality story narrative, they, they'll go into a booth and they'll talk about, you know, their comrades or they talk about their own aspirations or whatever. They, they go into that confessional booth and they talk about stuff. And that's what you have with Al Capone. But they're usually disguised as scenes with reporters or the aforementioned scene where he's in a meeting with his gangsters. He's really not in that Elliot Ness narrative. And there are two scenes that he actually is part of the narrative. There's a scene where Elliot Ness, he uh, frustrated. I think this is after um, Jim Malone's murder or after something pivotal happens. He's emotionally distressed. So he goes to a hotel that where he knows Al Capone is staying and he asks to see Al Capone. Like he's threatening the, the whoever it is at the desk to show him where Al Capone is. And then Al Capone just happens to, to be walking downstairs and they get into an argument and, you know, they threaten each other with guns and they make promises to each other. But um, obviously the scene has never happened. And But that is one of the scenes where Capone's part of the narrative, is be, uh, part of the narrative because Elliot Ness is there. And then and at the end of the movie, at the trial, there is a scene where he's, uh, you know, they they uh, where Elliot Ness says, you know, he, he says something corny or don't stop fighting till the fighting's done or something. Why would you give advice to a criminal? He's kind of like... This basically happens after um, the judge is convinced that the jury is is bought or had been offered bribes. So he switches his jury with another jury that's happening at another court case. So they switch juries. And these are jurors that Al Capone doesn't know and had not been bribed. And this it, the whole like kerfuffle breaks out where, you know, they're. It's like uh, everybody erupts. There's a lot of screaming and yelling. There's almost a fight happening. That's when Capone punches his lawyer because his lawyer pleads guilty. <laughs> and then uh, and Ness makes his way to Capone and tell, tells him, never stop fighting until the fighting's done, which is a really corny and cheesy line. But, you know, that's that's what he says. And, and that's basically the, the end of the movie. But um, and that's the only other time where he, where Al Capone is part of this particular narrative. But they could have done this movie entirely without Al Capone because he's not part of this. The only part he plays in the story is that he is the object that's being pursued. But this movie would have been entirely different had it Al Capone not done his confessionals in this movie, and they were brilliant because Al Pacino is brilliant as Al Capone. Now, is it? Is it Robert De Niro? I'm sorry, I said Al Al Pacino. Robert De Niro is brilliant as Al Capone in his movie, so um, that's why. And, and this movie, you know, it just works. It just 
you know, the way it, it's composed, I, I guess that reality shows kind of got the idea of doing confessionals because somebody watched a lot of this movie. Somebody watched The Untouchables over and over again. So um, that that's why. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know why. I don't know why things happen. I, I just know that <laughs> this movie works. So um, also, I noticed that. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Al Capone had another nickname. His nickname is Scarface. His real name is Alphonse Capone. And his nickname was Scarface. He has a nickname because he has this enormous scar on the, I want to say the left side of his cheek. And I never noticed it when I originally watched the movies, you know, decades ago, but I noticed it now. It, you can definitely see it on a high def television. It's like, oh, there's a scar. There's a, it's very subtle, but there it is. And, um, yeah, that that's it. Those are my favorite parts of the movie. So let's move on to the next segment. So we've talked about our favorite parts, and now let's transition to the trivia. We get most of our trivia from IMDb, and so let's see what they have to say about The Untouchables. Albert H. Wolf, the last survivor of the real un- of the real life Untouchables, was a consultant on this movie and helped Kevin Costner with his portrayal of Elliot Ness. An envelope dropped on the desk of Elliot Ness in one scene is assumed to be a bribe, but the amount inside is never revealed. In real life, Al Capone promised Elliot Ness that two $1,000 bills would be on his desk every Monday morning if he had turned a blind eye to his bootlegging activities. An enormous amount of money then, more than $30,000 a day, Ness refused the bribe and in later years struggled with money. He died almost broke at the age of 54. In real life, Al Capone, knowing that killing a prohibition agent would only lead to more trouble than he or his outfit could handle, actually had a non-violence order to his men concerning the untouchables. While Capone did repeatedly attempt to buy them off, he never once attempted to kill Elliot Ness or any of his men. Robert De Niro tracked down Al Capone's original tailors and had them make him some identical clothing for the movie. According to director... Brian De Palma, the producer Art Liedenson in the DVD commentary, it was Sir Sean Connery's idea to film the blood oath scene between Ness and Malone in a Catholic church. Originally, it was going to take place on the street in the same scene that follows the church scene. Connery felt that the church would be the only safe place in Chicago where two characters would make such a commit, commitment to fight Al Capone. Robert De Niro insisted on wearing the same style of silk underwear that Al Capone wore, even though it would never be seen on camera. The producers, knowing De Niro's reputation as a method actor, gave in. Though the patron saints of police are Michael the Archangel and St. Sebastian, Irish police officers often carried St. Jude medals, the patron saint of hopeless causes. At the end of the film, reporter Scoop asks Ness what he'll do if they repeal Prohibition, to which he replies, I think I'll take a drink. Elliot Ness later did become a heavy drinker and even gotten involved in an alcohol-related traffic accident. The baby in the carriage, which I mentioned earlier, at the train station, 
was the stunt coordinator son. I should have gotten his name. It was freely available in the credits on IMDb, but I did not. Continuing on. Despite the final courtroom scene in this movie, the real Al Capone and Elliot Ness never came face to face during their battles. I think I, I wrote this in somewhere else in the trivia, but they, or I think I mentioned it earlier, but they did meet when Elliot Ness escorted Al Capone to jail. In the original script, the final gunfight had Elliot Ness and George Stone battling Capone gunmen on a stopped train. Brian De Palma conceived the gunfight on the steps in Chicago's Union Station when Paramount Pictures decided that staging the scene and finding a 1930s period train would be too expensive. The movie portrays Elliot Ness as being happily married to his wife, having a daughter and a baby son. In real life, Elliot Ness had been married three times. He was married to his first wife, Edna Stanley, during the early 1930s. And on the, and the only child he ever had was an adopted son named Robert. Elliot Ness and his role in bringing down Al Capone had been completely forgotten at the time of his death in 1957. No Chicago newspaper carried the news of his passing. His, his heroic reputation only began with the posthumous publication of the Untouchables book he had co-written with Oscar Fraley and the Untouchables 1959 television series adapted from it. It was kind of messed up because uh, it, it would seem that Al Capone, in, in a way, got the last laugh because his his name is in infamy like people had known him when he was alive he was known when he was convicted he was known while he was still in jail but Elliot Ness basically faded in into history and forgotten until his death so I, I ask it's some it's some sadness there it's some sadness Brian De Palma later modified the battle on this train sequence he planned for the movie and used it in Carlito's way which came out in 1993. Robert De Niro didn't have much time to gain the extra weight needed for his role. So he had to wear pads and pillows for the desired effect of looking like the chunkier Capone. Shasan Connery showed up to the shoot in his golf clothes. They did a close-up and Sean was dismissed for the day. He came back later after a full day of golf, acted for five minutes, then went to go home. Andy Garcia and Charles Martin Smith grabbed him after the scene and said that it was very clever of you. You just got back from golf, turned up for five minutes, and then you do your scene, and that's it. Sean Connery turned to them and said, This is not my first barbecue. George Carlin is a voice on the radio broadcast program to which the Ness family was listening in the living room. Brian De Palma said that when he was filming this scene in the train station, he made up a series of shots as the scene was being filmed. So this scene looks like it's being carefully planned, but really Brian De Palma did all of this on the fly, which is a, a massive statement about his about his uh, film technique, his character, his uh, his abilities. The character of Oscar Wallace. Charles Martin Smith was loosely based on Frank Wilson, the IRS agent who worked to indict Capone for income tax evasion. Wilson had been working on this project since 1928 and had next to nothing to do with Ness and the Untouchables in real life. Wilson was not killed by Capone, though Capone reportedly placed a contract on his life which was never carried out. Don Johnson was offered the role of Elliot Ness but declined. Costner 
a good friend of Johnson, later accepted the part. Johnson said he congratulated Costner over getting the role, never telling him he was offered the role first several several years later in order not to offend Costner, nor steal any thunder away from his acclaim. Costner and Johnson co-starred in Tin Cup in 1996. Fashion icon Giorgio Armani, who provided the costume for this movie, told Brian De Palma that he should cast Don Johnson as Elliot Ness. Johnson wore Armani on television every week on Miami Vice in 1984. And Armani called Johnson's his male muse. So now we get a behind-the-scenes looks on how people are cast sometimes. When Elliot Ness and the bailiff removed Frank Nitti from the courtroom, on account of Nitty wearing a concealed firearm, Nitty produces a permit in the form of a carte blanche or carte blanche, which read, please extend to the holder of this card, Frank Nitty, all the courtesies, etc. Signed by Chicago Mayor William Thompson. This is a reference to the real relationship described by Wikipedia.com as a mutually profitable one. Among other things, Capone supported Thompson's election campaigns that existed between Al, Al Capone and the mayor. When Agent George Stone is introduced, Malone finds out that his real name is Giuseppe Petri, and he is born in Italy. In Italian, Giuseppe Petri can be literally translated as Joseph Stone. Only the filmmakers know why George was chosen because it translates to Giorgio in Italian. The infamous dinner scene was based on an incident in Cicero, Illinois in February 1929, two weeks after the most notorious murder in Chicago gangland history. Unlike what was in the movie, Al Capone did not execute one but three disloyal associates who were planning to assassinate him and take over his crime empire. The radio show listened to by Elliot and his wife early in the movie is actually an episode of Amos and Andy. In the episode, they have just bought a clunker for their new cab company from their friend George Kingfish Stevens. From Wikipedia, the 1928 to 1960 radio show was created and written and voiced by two white actors, Freeman Godson, who played Amos Jones, and Charles Corelli, who played Andrew Hall Brown. So when I mentioned earlier that there were no black people in this film that I could find, that's what I was talking about. Because when I originally looked at this movie, what I was thinking was, okay, there are no black movies in this film except for the people in this radio program. And it turns out they weren't even black. So, so there's that. I mean, it's not a really big deal. I'm not, you know, trying to sound, uh, I'm not trying to make any political statements or anything. It's just, I understand how movies in the eighties were made like this, but um, it's, interesting to note how when people make movies of the past they pretend that black people didn't exist and they did, did the same thing for a time about you know people in the future they would pretend that black people didn't exist in the future this um and, and this you know was somewhat prevalent in hollywood and this is this isn't just black people this is any any non-white person right <laughs> so yeah, that 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 was there was a lot of, of that going around in Hollywood. But um yeah, they they were absent in this movie. So now that we've done with trivia, let's go see what the critics thought. 
All right, now we are here to see what the critics thought. The critics at Rotten Tomatoes, they gave it an 81%. The audience score was 89%. And on IMDb Reviews, it has a 7.9 out of 10. George Morris from the Chicago Reader, he wrote, to paraphrase William Butler Yeats, the moral, psychological, and emotional center of the Untouchables, like that of all of the De Palma movies, and like that of Reagan's administration, simply cannot hold. Um, so, yeah, they didn't hold. This movie occurred in the 1930s, and there are a lot of people, and this is like an era where Reagan grew up in, so yeah, obviously he's going to hold these rules, and and there are a lot of people that hold these views. And, and these views, he says that these views simply cannot hold, but these views are prevalent today. So I'm not saying, yeah, yeah, we would like for them not to hold, but they are definitely holding fast. Derek Malcolm from The Guardian, he wrote, The Untouchables is two hours of fairly solid entertainment and eventually uplifting parable about right beating might case and form of a Warner Brothers social realistic picture of the 30s. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what? I kind of, I can see that. I like that. Stephen Hunter from the Baltimore Sun wrote, the characters become moral forces rather than human beings and the story has the tinny resonance of a cheap western. It's fabulously entertaining for what it is, but its lack of ambition leaves you a little depressed. Fico Cangiano of Cine Express podcast wrote the untouchables is an entertaining cop versus mob action drama that includes good performances but is a little too melodramatic david kerr of chicago tribune wrote it's an action film without much personality or drive and without enough imaginative detail to make the action gripping or meaningful i disagree these scenes were impactful Especially beating a head, beating a man's head with a baseball bat at a dinner. Come on, man. Richard Skeckel from Time Magazine wrote, It goes to that place that all films aspiring to greatness must attain. The country of myth, where all the figures must be larger and more vivid than life. Yeah, yeah, it, it does a good job at that. Finally, The Untouchables, as of this recording, is available for purchase. No, is available for free if you have HBO Max. That's it for today. Next week, we totally break kayfabe as we check out a movie that was definitely around after Zach was born. And he was probably, he probably seen it before. We're, we're just watching it because I'm really itching to watch it again. That film is Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Follow us on Twitter at Backlick Cinema or on Facebook or Instagram at Backlick Cinema Podcast for updates. And as a reminder, we are posting videos on TikTok. You can check out Backlick Cinema for, for that, for the TikTok stuff. So don't forget, you can contact us with any questions or comments or suggestions at famo at backlickcinema.com. One last time, if you like this show, then please help us grow. To do this, you can subscribe to the show, rate us, or write a review on Spotify, Podchaser.com, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie from yesteryear with your family. Hug your loved ones. And if you're going to be anything, be outstanding.